Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and we have um, yet another wonderful guest, Brittany Andrew Amofa. Hi, Brittany. Hey, hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. I've wanted to have you on for a bit, for a minute now. So I'm happy that you've joined us on this beautiful Mother's Day. So first of all, happy Mother's Day to your mother and happy Mother's Day, mom. I'm going to call you after this. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. A huge fan from afar. Any podcast that has women who are speaking unapologetically about all things Canadian poly, but like politics at large, current affairs, and obviously do- doing so with an intersectional feminist lens is one that is in my good books. So I'm very, very happy to be here. <laughs> happy. All right. So um, before we start, let me tell you all a little bit about Brittany. She is the senior policy and research analyst at the Broadbent Institute, where she is responsible for setting the research and policy direction of the organization. She also provides regular commentary on CBC News, CTV News, and other major outlets. And Brittany currently sits on the board of the Urban Alliance on Race Relations. Actually, tell us a little bit about the Urban Alliance on Race Relations. It's actually one of the longest, I would say, racial advocacy groups in the GTA. So they've been very active for decades now, dating back to the 70s and the 80s. And it works to, it's, it's, well, it's a few things. It's a convener, convener, a mobilizer, and an educator educating body essentially that works to eradicate racism Mm -hmm. in all its forms um, in the GTA but Canada at large so we bring what I imagine all different forms of racial oppression discrimination kind of underneath our umbrella and we work with um, elected officials we work with members of the public to address issues of Islamophobia, address issues of anti-Black racism, uh, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, but we work, we do so collectively. Yeah. So we lobby, but we also advocate. And my role on the board is to help steer the direction of our advocacy agenda alongside my amazing board members, um, but also to ensure that racial justice stays on the political and policy agenda uh, within the GTA, but also Canada at large. Yeah, and there will be coming up a greater need for what you guys do. Yeah, yeah. It's it's file, we've done a basically. number of things. The organization itself, the board has done a number of things in the past few decades from printing its own actual magazine, so racial justice newspaper, uh to yeah, yeah, it's, it's no way. It was called like current affairs. I should actually show you a copy. It's it's quite remarkable, especially for being like in the the Please I would do. say this came out in like the late 80s, 90s, pretty I would say revolutionary for its time. Uh, but anywhere from workshops mm. to uh, media training around how do you speak about, about racial justice to working directly with elected officials to address a number of different problems. So it's been a, quite a multifaceted uh, organization that I am really proud to help guide and steer. And it's something that's so, so needed right now. Um, it's, it's, we, we all know what's happening. Yes. I, I don't need to avoid, like, remind your audience. But because yeah. racism is coming at us in yeah. new morphed 
ways and forms, um, being a central body that addresses all of them at the same time, I think is so crucial. Yeah. I agree. And what I find interesting is that um, racism, uh, it's, you know, the way it's being distributed is different. The, The kind of dog whistles have changed a little bit. I mean, there's a lot that's still the same, but there are some kind of new dog whistles that people in general have no idea about because it's so interconnected Mm -hmm. with internet culture now. And there are just a lot of people Mm -hmm. on the outside of that. So I feel like it's even more important to bridge that divide because there's a lot more education that needs to be done. It's not just about racism and what constitutes racism, but how racism shows up in not necessarily in your feed, but in this really subversive way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. Awesome. So let's hit it this week in feminism. Ha free menstrual products. Yay. I'm all for it. So a recent proposal introduced by the liberal government says that workers in federally regulated workplaces should have access to free menstrual products. The government wants to put tampons and other menstrual products in the same group of supplies employers must provide for free, like toilet paper, soap, warm water, and a way to dry your hands. However, the liberals don't yet know how the program would work and have launched a 60-day consultation to gain insight into the types of products that are needed and the costs this might have on a business. There are also questions about how to provide products in places where there may be space limits or where workers share washrooms with the public, such as with trains and aircraft. The proposed rules would apply to 1.2 million workers in the federal labor force, which includes banks, telecommunications, and transport workers, and makes up about 6% of the country's workers. A 2018 survey from Plan Canada International suggested that a third of women under the age of 25 found it difficult to afford menstrual products and further suggested that almost three quarters had missed work for reasons connected to menstruation because of, for instance, not having the supplies they need when a period started unexpectedly. The cost of menstrual products varies significantly across the country. A 40-pack of tampons in northern and remote communities Mm -hmm. can cost upwards of $15. So, I mean, (laughs) I, this has been one of these issues that has, I swear to God, been at the back of my mind since I was like a teen. Like, A, how do people afford these every month is number one, especially if they're not included in I find it interesting that they're not included in the consumer, Mm -hmm. um, the CPI. And obviously that's, that's very gendered, but that would just increase the reasoning as to why we need gender-based analysis Mm -hmm. on all of our policies. But, um, I am not seeing this as a win yet. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, uh, 
free menstrual products is something that is absolutely needed. Um, it's been a long time coming in terms of the conversation of having free menstrual products. I think it was remarkable to see that schools in BC will now have to provide uh, menstrual products in, in, in their washrooms. So that's excellent. So one, I think it's overdue that we're having this sort of policy conversation. So I am all gung-ho for it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, whether it's a win, this is a little bit of a complex question. So from the federal government's standpoint or position, they can't do much in terms of implementing the most effective policy measure in this particular area. So from my point of view, the most effective measure to get menstrual products to those who need it most. So those who are either low income, homeless, mm -hmm. you, children and youth um, who, who will need these menstrual products, it will need to be provided at homeless shelters, city services, uh, within our provincial public education systems, and then like universities, right? right. Which are out of the jurisdiction for the, the like, federal. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I think they did, they kind of maximized what they could do. They only really yeah. do have jurisdiction over the federal workforce. And I guess their role in this particular case is to set an example yes. and to be, you know, the leader in terms of like, this is what we should do. And I've, so I've been thinking a lot about this in terms mm -hmm. of like, you know, what are some of their options? So this is obviously they're an option. And I think it's the one that makes the most sense. Another option would have been to either directly fund grassroots initiatives or organizations who are doing this work, right? Yeah. And and there are, there are a number of them. I, I, I'm not going to say there's a large amount. I haven't I haven't done my counting on in this particular area, but there are a few people who are doing this work on the local level already. So getting direct federal funding could be useful. And then it would be up to, and then like they could use that funding to purchase menstrual products, provide education, to mobilize, to, you know, do all the work that's needed there. But the problem with that is, is a matter of equity. So are these grassroots advocacy organizations in every single province? right? Likely not. Mm -hmm. I don't think the same amount of resources that will exist in Ontario in terms of people being able to do this work, it may not exist in Newfoundland. So that is right. already a problem in terms of like, okay, how can the federal government maximize their reach in this area? So although it's like, mm, it's a little bit lackluster in terms of their approach, there's not much that they can really do. So right. it's, it's a win, but it's more like a win if they advocate and vocally push for other jurisdictions to step up. And that's what I want to see. Yeah, I, you know, when I first saw this, um, it was the BC, um, the BC case, which I was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I love it. I want more of this. Um, which types of menstrual products and which brands is is an interesting question. Because yeah. I hope yeah. this doesn't turn into one big procurement exercise. Mm, However, say it. Yep. yeah. However, um, uh, it's it's a it's a necessary step forward, and I think you're right. I think it is more of a signal. Yeah, and the signal because let's be honest. I mean the reason we even talk about some of the things we talk about or 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 companies act on it is because they get a signal from the federal government mm -hmm. um throughout the country so uh for those who don't know on a ministerial order 
issued, I think a couple weeks ago, all BC public schools are now required to provide free menstrual products for students in school bathrooms um, under the province. Um, so it comes with $300,000 in provincial startup funding. Wonderful. So I always like when, you know, money is committed because that tells me you're serious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, this is like the underlying, I guess, issue with this is that, or not issue with BC doing this, so that's remarkable, but I mean, the whole overall conversation around access to menstrual products is that they are actually so expensive. And I think it's something yes. that men can't really fathom or, or understand what it is to have to purchase products on either a monthly or like people have a variety of different cycles. It could come sooner, could, could come later, but having to purchase these products on a regular basis, like what that, what that yeah. really entails and the experience of that and how it, how it impacts you financially. Right. And like you, and so when this is, I'm actually giving a hint to what I, I will be ranting about a little bit later, but when men insert yeah. themselves Oh my gosh, be... I was just, stop, stop taking <laughs> this out of my head. Stop it. <laughs> okay, you go, you go. But I mean like. Because I'm, no, 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 because I'm here for it. When men insert themselves, go ahead, because right now I'm searching for something that I will add to yeah. that. So go on. Into a topic that actually has, like, it's like, doesn't impact your body, your livelihood. I mean, this is, again hinting at what I will be ranting about later, but like an experience that is so outside of you for you to have the audacity yeah. to insert yourself into this conversation and to basically stipulate what is acceptable and not acceptable when it's not, it's an experience that um, are, are like, it's abnormal to you. It's not something that's normal. And this is cis men to be specific. It is mind boggling, mind boggling. And it's, it's, it's extremely frustrating because it's a very it's a very specific financial experience that uh, yeah. uh, women and, and those who identify as women or non-binary do experience, right? And um, yeah. it's expensive. It's expensive. It's costly. And if you don't have the proper um, products, it can pose as an extreme health risk. So yes. and it affects your ability to like move through this world to like, you know, employment to like, it's so many things, yeah. but I'm going to stop there and I'm going to let you go ahead. But well, okay. So here's, here's the thing. It's, it is literally like, it's not optional. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's discretionary spending. It is non-discretionary spending. Mm -hmm. Every woman on this planet with a uterus of a certain age has to buy these products. So let's just say that. So basically what it acts as is a tax. Mm -hmm. And so as a tax, taxes distort outcomes. So, um, you know, whether you want to say, you know, whether positively or negatively they do, you know, so anyway, um, Here's my issue with men. So Michelle Rempel apparently was sure. tweeting about how she could barely afford menstrual products when she was a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I do. I, I got to say, you know, sometimes when let, let me just say this. Mm -hmm. When Michelle Rempel shows up, she shows the fuck up. I will say that. Um, and and. That's like no shade. Like I appreciate mm -hmm. that she's really like taken this 
topic and really talked about it. So for her efforts, who opens his mouth and sticks it in where it doesn't belong? That motherfucker Bernier who tweeted, quote, so many people have become so used to getting freebies that and to have the government hold their hands throughout their lives, that it's become normal for a political party to campaign on free tampons. Not for me. Time to bring back common sense in, in like capital letters, so I feel shouted at, and personal responsibility, also in capital letters. And another tweet that said, hurrah, our caring and generous government is removing another exactly. major social inequity exactly. by solving the great menstrual products unavailability crisis of the early 21st century. How in the world were previous generations able to manage their lives without such help from Ottawa? Well, they stayed at home and in bed, asshole. You fucked hard. Like, I am just, like, this, this, holding this personal responsibility when I just explained that this is a tax. So it's not a freebie if you're already getting taxed. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's like a flat tax. You're so right. It is. It's a, great, it's a great way of looking at it and it's only applied to those with a uterus. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's a distortionary flat tax because it's only applied to women. Yeah. That's yeah. the point. That's the whole fucking point. Yeah. Like this guy does not understand equity. No. I know. And but it is the audacity to stick your nose. Has he had a period that I don't know of? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Can he tell me the difference between a panty liner and overnight pad? Mm-hmm. Can he? And the Can thing he? is it's it's just so ironic because his position and his rationale around what did people do before Ottawa stepped in is very much out of line with his whole economic uh, libertarian like focused agenda. If you are so focused on, you know, the economy, work, um, industries, et cetera, et cetera, you are willing, right, to basically say like, oh, half the population isn't necessarily like, they don't, they don't really need to be involved in this, et cetera. So, like, the rationale doesn't necessarily add up because if you think about it, women actually couldn't go to work if you were on your period or you couldn't do exactly. those things. So if you're really about enhancing the economy, then this would make sense and that rationale wouldn't line up. So it's it's just it's just him, I would say, like, busting, like, bursting at the mouth again, looking for something to say, looking for attention, looking for media. So it's it's... Yeah, I try. It's so interesting with Bernier because it's like a fine line between like, when do you like tell him like you really like calling him out that he really needs to stop and like this is harmful and then also just ignoring. It's like, ah, I always have to pick and choose between the two because I don't want to give somebody attention who's basically yeah. like, seeking it yeah. every way they turn. So, yeah, this is but this man has a bad habit of sticking his nose where yeah. it doesn't fucking belong. Does. Does. You know, he did it with MP Selena when he he decided that he was going to talk about anti-blackness because he knew something that he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. It's this assumption that his words carry weight because he's a white man who has opinions 
and what? This is the guy who couldn't even hold on to federal documents. So get the <laughs> fuck out of here is my thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just, now I'm angry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very angering. It's very angering. Um, but all that to say is that, thankfully, I think public opinion is not on his side. And I think there are really some really great indicators that show that the menstrual acts or the access to menstrual products uh, movement is is growing uh, from initiatives we've seen at the local level in terms of like City Hall, specifically Toronto City Hall, uh, dedicating funding to provide menstrual products to the homeless and those in the shelter system. Huge win. Yes. Um, we see other countries around the world who are providing menstrual products to those in schools, as you saw with BC, but like those in schools and to, to those in um, who face more poverty-like conditions, huge win. So those are the things that give me hope, um, is knowing yeah. that he can pop off at the mouth, but his words carry very little weight um, in this particular yeah. topic, on this particular topic, so. So what are we doing for Indigenous women on reserve mm-hmm. and in the North? Yeah. Are they getting there? Because that would be useful. That would be extremely useful. I'm just saying, if we're going to be intersectional about this, let's think about this. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the federal government has, it's within their right, full jurisdiction, almost. It's within yeah. the full jurisdiction. So. Actually, what, you know what, if the, you know, I have a, I have a suggestion. So why don't we build policy around those people? around the marginalized people that the federal that the federal government had actually has jurisdiction out yeah. you know over and start there instead of starting with the with the 95th percentile or the 95th the 95% confidence interval is basically what i'm saying yeah yeah you and it's I mean? safe to say that those who are federal employees are maybe not the most vulnerable Mm-hmm. are the most vulnerable within our population. I think it's safe to say, I know with the changing nature of work and like there's different, very specific characteristics of work that do keep people in um, low income situations in jobs that once weren't considered to deliver those particular outcomes. So I do want to be a little bit careful with that language, but it's yeah. safe to say they are likely not the most vulnerable of populations. Let's assume. We'll state that assumption for yeah. the argument. How's that? Yeah, yeah. So I think starting there is an excellent modification uh, to this policy proposal, looking specifically at access on on reserves. Yeah. And what it would look like to actually fully deliver, considering that we have here that there's we have the very specific fact that in northern and remote communities, costs can cut um Venture products can cost upwards of $15. And a lot of Indigenous communities live in Northern communities, remote mm-hmm. communities. Exactly. So, yeah. I don't know how they've been doing it for this long. Mm-hmm. Like, they, like, I really don't. And I was in, like, Shoppers the other day. And Shoppers is expensive as hell. Yeah. You know, the fact... I have a problem, too, with places like Shoppers who jack up prices. I don't really know that they jack up prices to this extent. I don't know. But... Let's just say I find shoppers extremely expensive. Shoppers is is expensive. Compare a product at Shoppers to to Walmart or even the dollar store, which is like their product line is expanding massively. It is expensive. And I think a a part of it is convenience. Um, Yeah. Shoppers, Jacques Marts are usually located. Uh, There's a whole bunch of reasons, right? But no, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And the fact that they have, they basically have like, well, maybe a duopoly, but they have a national monopoly yeah. on, yeah. um, on these kinds of, you know, personal goods. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, to be honest, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to veer off to make a comment, but I'll, I'll bring it back. Cause that's another story, but that's the problem when shoppers merged with or when Loblaws bought shoppers mm-hmm. is that now we have a big fucking monopoly that can mm-hmm. jack up prices at will you know because there's not a rex hall everywhere yeah yeah you know what i mean and which brings me to something a question i've been asking all week which is where is the competition bureau mm-hmm. and that's part of the issue is that we have we have all in terms of price we have all these monopol monopolistic actors that can just set price or if it's not monopolies it's like duopolies or just a small head a small set of players mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway that's a different issue that i'm sure i will come to so i'll bring <laughs> it back and um we have first aid kits in the workplaces yep. so why can't we have so According to Maxime Bernier, should we not have a first aid kit in the workplace either? Like, according to these naysayers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, why is blood from a woman's vagina that happens every month, that happens to basically every woman, um, why is that a special privilege? Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't I, like- I feel like I, I can't even echo your comments enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's mind boggling. It's mind boggling. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. It's, it's extremely sexist. Like it's, this is like the way these conversations unfold and men like Maxine Bernier who insert themselves from this particular position. It mm. is one patriarchy at one of its finest. Cause it, manifests in quite remarkable ways at times um so one of its finest but it's it's also like it, it can come down to misogyny yeah right? and it like that's kind of like at the core of it it's like why are women not able to be given or afforded this this sort of dignity especially within the world? yes thank you it is a dignity issue and that's the thing so um one thing i'm happy about and I want to give a, I'm, I'm going to give a little props to Cardi B here. <laughs> Cardi B, so this week was the Met Gala. Cardi B showed up in the biggest menstrual gra- like gown I've ever seen. I was like, it looks like, sh- like she looked like somebody's period. And I was here for it. <laughs> because I am here for talking about menstruation in public, period. Because there's such a stigma around talking about menstruation and, you know, you know, actually, actually having a discussion about it that I'm glad that we're talking about these things out in the open so that people don't have to run and hide when they've had some mistake or something like that. Me too. And even if they do, that there may be somebody there to help them. You know, yeah. you know, I feel like women have this underground tampon or pad exchange. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you you I feel like every woman's had this experience where it's like, you're like, shit, 
my period started or I'm on my period and I'm wearing white pants. Yeah. Oh, the white pants. Or just like a leak that came out of nowhere or it coming, yeah. it just happening, happen, like happening suddenly, right? Like all of a sudden yeah. you didn't expect it when your period was coming and then it, it arrived and you, you're kind of rushed into an emergency situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But like, I swear there's like an underground railroad for like period problems. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, do you have one? Do you have something? You know? Yeah. Anyway, fuck Maxime Bernier and hello periods. Okay. So we're going to move on now to the U.S. Oh, boy. Let's do it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the Trump administration wants to redefine poverty. And wants to, so he wants to change the poverty measure that would reduce or eliminate assistance to millions of lower income Mm -hmm. Americans. I am so not surprised. Anyway, the Trump administration floated a proposal to use a lower measure of inflation when adjusting the property line, poverty line, sorry, each year. Consistent with other policies the administration has pursued, this policy would over time cut cut or take away entirely food assistance, health, and other forms of basic assistance from millions of people who struggle to put food on the table, put a roof over their heads, and see a doctor. The reductions in assistance that this proposal would produce stand in stark contrast to the administration's 2017 tax law, which conferred large new benefits on the highest income households. If the poverty line is altered in this fashion, fewer individuals and families will qualify over time for various forms of assistance, including many who work hard but are paid low wages. That's because using a lower measure of inflation, like the chained CPI, to adjust the poverty line each year would make the eligibility thresholds for various programs that serve people in need lower and lower over time compared with the household, compared with what the households otherwise be. So we're talking about lowering the income eligibility limits for programs like SNAP, food food stamps, and Medicaid, and also the Affordable Care Act's premium tax credits, thereby increasing the out-of-pocket premium charges faced by millions of people who purchase yeah. health care through the ACA marketplaces. Shit. Okay, I'm going to take a minute and I'm just going to say, I think there's a whole theme developing this episode as I'm thinking about it. And it's the structural inequities. So this is how the Republicans are doing what they're doing. They've, They've realized that they don't actually have to kill programs to make them ineffective. And what they're doing is they're chipping away at the edges to make them ineffective so they can, so that they are rendered obsolete and, and 
you know, you can build a political case later to get rid of them. Because when a program doesn't have a lot of take up, that's one way to get rid of a program you don't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my question is, and so U.S. policy is, is not my expertise or forte, so it's it's hard for me what from my position to really insert myself into this conversation I feel like and have meaningful commentary on it but oh, I have you can have many yeah <laughs> questions what is the yeah. goal of this so from my understanding by slashing these programs changing the poverty measure you are taking people off these programs you're reducing the costs um so government spending are they trying to reduce a deficit are they trying like what is there are they implementing different tax like i'm trying to understand what the goal of it is and maybe i I may have missed it but the goal doesn't seem that clear so when it's not clear this just looks like a really cruel and a cruel punishment like measure which in that case it's really great for advocacy purposes um to to demonstrate like the attack on the poor and how harmful that is. When because that- it doesn't have a clear, yeah. say, you know yeah. what, expand on that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's something that the Ford government also has been trying to grapple with, but they've just been using the deficit, the deficit, the deficit as their rationale. Like, right. in so much debt. Oh my gosh. Like, Ontario's been on a course of like overspending. And if we don't course correct now, doomsday's upon us. So that's the rationale for cutting. And cutting right and a lot yeah. of the measures have hit some of the most vulnerable within our province and also people right. who depend on social services for livelihoods for basic needs um all the things that i would i personally think that government should be fulfilling but like ensuring that people are, are achieving a life of, of well-being right so when you start slashing or attacking the poor um, by cutting away their services, when you change the poverty measure, that means there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are no longer considered poor and no longer eligible for this. And then where are they going to go? Um, when it's not clear what the goal is, it just looks like you're just being a cruel government for purpose, like for no purpose. So even even if you're a, the most fiscal conservative, right? Um, the the Um, the image of being cruel is not necessarily a political winner. So if that's the case for those who are progressives or those who are advocates, advocates of what I would say, like stronger social policies, stronger um, social programs, that's good. It's a good thing when the rationale is not clear because you can always find a case around dignity, around what um, well-being, around health, around standard of living, around the fact that the US is the richest nation, one of the richest nations in the world, and what does it mean when we have like when we can't take care of our, some of our most vulnerable. So I'm just saying for advocacy purpose, it's very it's good when it's not clear why you're deciding to take a, such a harsh stance um, like on poverty reduction measures. Um, but aside from that, uh, this is very much in line with Trump with being an obviously not just an awful human, but uh, governing in a way where he's protecting corporate interests, where he's protecting the rich, um, where I guess people's dignities and livelihoods don't matter to him. If you can't fend for yourself, like you're on your own. Um, what's really like interesting about this all is that now there's going to be a group of people who are no longer eligible for services and i guess the expectation on the government is for them to get a job which is a faulty loophole because as we know work and wages have been stagnant 
in Canada, but even more so in the U.S. Um, right. Their minimum wage is far lower than ours. I mean, cost of living depends on where you are. Um, jobs availability, as we know, is increasingly getting scarce and precarious, et cetera, et cetera. So you're just going to have more people in vulnerable positions if you don't have an actual transition plan for these folks. Now, so I'm, I'm going to leave that there and let you get, kind of get into it. But that's my perspective on this all. But yeah, and this is horrible. You, and you were like, I don't know if I have anything to add. Uh, and I'm just like, that's that's a lot. I'm Brittany. so hesitant it's, about like like having conversations around U.S. policy only because like it's just like there's just so many different facets and and intricacies to it that it's like, Ugh, I don't want to be saying the wrong thing. Like even the Affordable Health Care Act is like, so far removed from like my reality of like dealing with like Canadian healthcare systems and like, yeah. things like that. So that's why I'm always nervous. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I tried to add a one, two, one, two, but hopefully it was. Yeah. Like yeah. No, no, no. Your one, two, one, two is quite like illuminating. Let's put it that okay. way. So, because especially when you put it in an organizing perspective, because one of the things that I've learned about organizing is that, Organizing and education go hand in hand. Mm. Um, you have to consistently educate people on um, and and frame things in such a way that will relate mm-hmm. to them, right? So I think that one of the things, there are many issues where there hasn't been that education because um, for whatever reason, and... I think that that creates holes. It creates spaces where anybody can can um, can insert sort of their way of thinking about it, as long as it sounds like they believe what they're talking mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, education um, is key. Yeah, and kind of one of my biggest pet peeves. And it like we're starting. I feel like people are starting to get better, but for a very long time, it was like go to Google. The search engine's free or like go like referring people to the internet and not necessarily doing that labor. And I completely understand that you don't, the labor of like educating folks shouldn't necessarily fall on those who are experiencing, whether it's that form of oppression, um, experiencing, um, that particular injustice in that moment. Absolutely. But there was a missing link, I think for a little bit where, People were trying to learn. People were trying to catch up and wanting to be involved. Yeah. There are people who are actually rightfully, like, who have been very ignorant and are trying to derail yeah. people's efforts. Absolutely. But I think there's a right. moment where people are trying to get involved and they just didn't really know how. And I personally think as much as, like, the internet is a vast tool and resource, if you're in search of, like, a very clear direction and how to take a stance on an issue, it's a little bit difficult. There's a lot of things going on there. There's a lot of information, ways of doing things, et cetera. I think sometimes some guidance is needed, but that's why I love the education piece that's associated with organizing. And I think that's why I really love kind of the work that I'm doing because it's a combination of like educating, but also how do you communicate in the most effective way? How do you ensure that um, your work is not stagnant? So you're just not producing materials or producing content for the, the, like, for the sake of it, but also like to actually mm-hmm. for it to materialize into some sort of change or advocacy tool, et cetera. And like connecting with like communities who are organizing. I think that's so important, but absolutely. Education is such a huge piece of what I would say policy, but also like organizing, which I think 
very much go hand in hand in terms of like working towards a better world. I totally, I totally agree. And um, I would say that that's one of the failures of climate change. Mm. Um, It has not really, the education hasn't been there. It's, it's been, it's been abstract. And we like, when I say you need to relate it to people's every day. And when you talk about, you know, your insurance rates might be untenable meaning that there's a possibility that you can't own a home because climate change, that's real Mm -hmm. to people. And I feel like, I feel like the, excuse me, the issue has been taken over by people who don't want, who can't communicate and don't want to communicate because they're like, oh, well, this is the science and that's it. You know, don't do that to people. You got to give them a chance. And then chance. they're villainized yeah. when they're not fully on board. Yes. Yeah. That's it, right. You're so, yeah, That's you're my so issue. right. And uh, yeah, like climate change is such, it has been, it's, it's still very much abstract, right? And we're seeing so much interesting, yeah. what I think is an unfortunate debate around it, actually a dishonest debate around the carbon tax. But um, yeah. in terms of like, what does it really mean when our climate is changing? How is it affecting us? Like on a personal level, like in our day-to-day lives, et cetera, that has been completely exactly. missing from the conversation entirely. And I love the way you put it in terms exactly. of like, if your basement is flooding consistently, that will cost you and your insurance yeah. rates will go yeah. up. So maybe how do we prevent that from happening? Yeah. Cause I'm pretty sure we all don't want that. Exactly. Right? Um, even the yeah. health hazards of it. That's yeah. my, that's, that's my thing. Anyway, back to SNAP and mm-hmm. poverty. Um, uh, because I could talk about this forever. I'm like, I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fun fact in relation to this is that the federal government has a poverty reduction strategy. Oh, right Ours? now that consists of a yeah. Yeah, our federal, yes, our mm. government. And um, they've actually, so there are different ways to measure poverty uh, in, in, well, I guess internationally, but in Canada, we have like three kind of main measurements and that is low income measure, low income cutoff rate and the market basket mm-hmm. measure, um, which is actually the one that the federal government has officially decided to use, the market basket okay. measure, which it, which actually measures like the cost of goods, living, basic necessities, mm-hmm. et cetera. And you know what I'm happy to report, because I don't think it gets spoken enough, is that poverty, the poverty level or rate in this country is, is the lowest yeah. it's ever been. That, you know, I want to give the federal government credit where it's due. Um, I do think a lot, like a lot of things have been sold to start, like the national housing strategy, which is a key element or aspect of poverty reduction has basically not really taken like taken lift off or like been kind of like hasn't really started as of yet and i hope some like big movement is made on that front because housing is extremely important but some stark contrast between like the u.s they're like creating poverty and here we're actually trying to work towards i don't want to romanticize it there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the area but we do we do have something that's in the works yeah we've made strides for sure like i think i you know i'm no everybody knows i'm no love i have no love for the federal government however 
Um, I will give credit where credit's due always. And they've done a great job of especially reducing child poverty rates and Mm -hmm. poverty rates overall. I would say that what they, I know that ministers have been talking about it every now and then, but who listens to when a minister speaks? Like who wants to sit there? Like what I'm saying is I want to see, I want to see a like Instagram story on this. That's my point. Mm -hmm. I want to see, we started here and we ended here and that's an Instagram story. That's what I want. Yeah. I I also think I can't wait until we have elected officials who have gone through particular experiences and can speak to these issues with a sense of authenticity and a sense of realness in ways that really connect what's happening because how many people really know there's a poverty reduction strategy like what's happening and like the type of energy and resources and tenacity that's needed to like to to address it so the the reason why i'm thinking about that like i I grew up in poverty um i grew up in housing here in toronto i grew up my story is, is is online but i grew up in a really bad housing situation especially when you know the city is your landlord and you know, they're sold to address whether it's plumbing needs. Uh, there's like an element of control, but there's also an element of like, we'll get to you when you can. You're just not a, a priority right. in terms of like really addressing some of the needs. And I was living in a home that had constant flooding. Right. So our sewage would back up in our basement and our basement, we couldn't get access oh to it. Oh my gosh. Because all of it was, was our sewage. And as you can know, it smells horrible. And just living in that for like months on and off, on and off. And my mom would call um, our TCAT and be like, this is happening. They maybe send somebody, do maybe some, I forgot the thing that you do, the snake. I yeah, think there's, the some, yeah there's some, yeah, there's some plumbing. And then in a few weeks it will, it will, it will come back. And like what that the experience of that and what it actually feels to go through that. I don't feel like we hear that in our district. I agree now. with you. And, yep. and I, so I just can't wait till we get to a point where we have elected officials who know what it's like to have um, a family member who's incarcerated. Yes. Who knows what it's like to live in Toronto community. Yes. Housing, who knows what it's like to live on a reserve yeah. that's under-resourced and yeah. impoverished, that access to food is a constant issue. Who knows what it's like to um, face horrible and grave outcomes when it comes to the police and criminal justice criminal justice system when we get there then i think a lot of these you know issues of justice and issues that we've been trying to address they will take up in what what i imagine in much more meaningful and fiery ways where we can't escape it from the public like it won't it won't miss you you're gonna hear it on the radio you're gonna hear it when you put when you turn on your tv so I'm excited for those days. And I think it will come. I think so too. I also, I'm actually quite an optimistic sort. Um, <laughs> you know, just because I point out when things are shit doesn't mean that I don't think they'll get better, right? And mm-hmm. um, I truly believe that, holy fuck, what a time to be alive. Um, oh, yes. You know what I mean? Like, I feel fucking lucky to be alive at this because you know why because you and me as two black women okay in Canada can sit here talk on a podcast that's going to be I don't know who's listening 
um, that's going to be broadcast. And we're going to talk about issues for people who cannot speak for themselves, for people who don't have the access to the establishment, for people who don't have the access to policymakers or policy analysis or stuff like that. That's what I think is amazing. Yeah. And that we can say, we could talk about the racial issues involved and the poverty issues involved, and we can demand something better, that we have a voice that can do that. And I really, really am thankful for that. Maybe it's Mother's Day and maybe I'm like really thankful today, but I feel it. You know what I mean? Thank you for saying that because I absolutely agree. And I also want to thank you because your response is far better than mine. I was going to say, I feel lucky to be alive to witness Beyonce impacting the culture as she Girl, does. Girl, that's part of homecoming. it. So like, that's I was part like, of it. yeah, I feel lucky to be alive. Beyonce just dropped homecoming. I feel yes. lucky. I just, but yes. no, your answer like, is far more meaningful. <laughs> Listen, Beyonce, Beyonce took blackness to the next level, I must say, in a yeah, pop yeah. culture like way. And I was just like, and I thought to myself, girl, if you don't do it, the Kardashians will try. So please. <laughs> both of our answers combined we're lucky to be alive because we can have these sort of conversations in ways that we couldn't once before exactly like it's been democratized our opinions people grapple with it they take them seriously we can have it from a very particular lens of perspective that's missing from canadian politics at large but also yeah canadian politics but politics at large but also because beyonce is out here doing the thing yeah I listen to Homecoming every day. It's my my morning anthem, and it gets no me going. No way! I listen awesome. to Homecoming every day. <laughs> but also, it's just that motivation, you know, to continue doing that work and to see her as a Black woman be able to produce that on that level, you know? Yeah. And it's a little bit unthinkable, too. I mean, there's been greats before her and, and, and during different times as well, but I feel lucky to be able to witness that, and it makes me feel like I want to keep going in the work that I'm doing. And so, so I, I felt and the, the same... I, I felt the same way this week because I got to meet um, Sandy Hudson and Nora mm-hmm. Loretto. They were in Ottawa. We hung out a little bit. I felt I got to meet um, Bianca Wiley, who is one of the activists for um, or against uh, Sidewalk Labs. Yeah, she's great. I know. I've met her. He's yeah, fucking fantastic. Listen. fucking fantastic because I met these women I knew that I was all right (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I knew that I'd found my tribe I knew there was a tribe out there and it's different when you talk in person than when you're online Mm -hmm. and you know I was like okay so I know my direction and I have the more confidence now in pursuing it because I know I have these women at my back and my side and my friends up top, down below, wherever. And they get it and they're with it too. Yeah. That's yeah. the way I feel. I feel that's the way. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. Uh, Bianca is great. There's so many amazing women right now. There's so many amazing the, women. Like, leading, leading these conversations. Girl, who are being let me tell fearless, who are like who are actually having a position and perspective that's like, whoa, it's a bit mind boggling. It's like, thank goodness you're here. Cause what would we do if you weren't contributing no, to no, this no. conversation right now? Where let me, let me add some context then because you're going to love this. Okay. 
So I was at this um, internet of things, this IOT conference in, and Bianca was on one of the panels. She was on a panel with like execs from Bell Media and um, uh, da, 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 Bell and somebody, why am I blanking? I'm blanking. Somebody else. Another media person. Um, all men. And she took this conversation. She let it. I'm like, I was like, I don't even know why we have a moderator at this point. Mm-hmm. She she literally took it like she took it over and steered it towards digital rights and privacy rights. And and, you know, this, I'm sure, was supposed to be some sort of sales pitch. I'm pretty sure this was what you know, people were like, oh, I'm on a panel. Okay, I'll do this. I'll, I'll pitch. No, no, no. She's like, so what are we going to do about these privacy rights? So what are we going to do about these, about access to digital and access to you? Because these meetings, these public consultations that you're talking about are happening during times when people are working and especially women where childcare has to be arranged mm-hmm. and they're out in the middle of nowhere where they get transportation. I was like, I'm just, I, I was just floored. Like I, I was, I was, I was impressed on so many levels and I was fangirling. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel so lucky to be in the, whatever position I'm in to be in that position. Right. Because I have options. We have options. People who are are subject to government whims don't so let's remember that we have a huge income inequality issue you know incomes grew rapidly roughly the same rate and from the late 40s to the early 70s after that the gap widened or started widening you had economic growth and income gaps and that all, and for the last 40 years, that's what we've had. And that affects the ability to participate in the civic sphere. And what I'm seeing with Trump and Doug Ford and Jason Kenney and all the rest of them is that they are attacking the welfare state. They are trying to, like, that's the game, I feel is that their game is a long one and it's to eliminate the welfare state. And when I say welfare state, I don't mean welfare. I mean, social Mm -hmm. services. I mean, equity issues. I mean, all of that. So that's why Maxime Bernier gets off, off on his soapbox is because the when people say the reduction of government, what it should translate to is the reduction Mm -hmm. in benefits for mm-hmm. you. My job. And that's why criminalizing the poor mm-hmm. is instrumental in that. Because there's this whole thing about you're poor because it's your fault. And it's not. Mm-hmm. It's structural. It's not about My you. My job. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, let's move on to pop culture. <laughs> All right. So, Rihanna. My girl, so now you're talking about yeah. Beyonce. 
I love Rihanna too for the same reason. She just does it differently. So this this week, Rihanna announced that she will be launching her own luxury fashion brand, Fenty. The line will be in partnership with LVMH, so that's Louis Vuitton's parent company, um, the world's largest luxury goods conglomerate, whose other brands include Dior, Fendi, Givenchy, Marc Jacobs, and Celine, among many others. I believe she also paired with them to launch the beauty line, too, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere, they work in it in some way. The New Deal makes Rihanna the first woman of color to lead an LVMH label and cements her position amongst the fashion industry's biggest names. It has also been over 30 years since LVMH launched a new luxury apparel brand, the last being Christian Lacroix in 1987. While the announcement of a Fenty expansion into a full-fledged fashion house may not come as a surprise, it still marks a significant moment and, mi- and a milestone for an industry grappling with influential culture, excuse me, influencer culture, new revenue streams, and diversified customer bases. Rihanna is showing a high degree of business savvy, having diversified her revenue streams Puma by Fenty, her lingerie line Savage by Fenty, Mm -hmm. and Fenty Beauty, showing she's following in Jay-Z's footsteps. So, um, first of all, hello, Rihanna, again. Um, I I saw her new summer line for, for Fenty Beauty, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't. I can't. Just take all my money. Just take it. Um, but I think what's very important to note is that she's done this with intention. So in business, the why is so important, even though people who outside of business don't really talk about it, but the why, the why you make the products you make is becoming more and more important and more and more a part of your mission and your values and your branding. And so I think what Rihanna has done for fashion is fashion and beauty needs to like kiss her feet because basically she brought in a whole new um, clientele. Yeah. Can I tell you something that we all know that Beyonce revolutionized the beauty industry with her color range. Amazing, amazing. Like, I'm so grateful for somebody who's a dark-skinned woman. You mean Rihanna? Been, it, yeah. Did I, did I say? You said Beyonce. Oops. Sorry, <laughs> said Beyonce. It's all brain. good. I meant Rihanna. I know. As somebody who's a dark-skinned woman, yeah. it has been a struggle my entire life to, one, find a color that matches my skin tone, but also the affordability aspect of it, right? So I only, from since like a teenager, when I started wearing makeup, I could only go to high-end brands. Right. And it, those are expensive because drugstore brands did not carry colors nowhere near my skin tone. It was just not even a thing. So, so wait, wait, wait. Just... This is another tax, by the way. Oh, <laughs> Because yeah. the fact that you is. have to upgrade because of because of your inherent skin tone, mm-hmm. because drugstore brands didn't offer your skin tone, is a tax. Okay, carry on. Yeah. 
a black beauty <laughs> exactly. talks everybody. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, so, like, I've, I've always thought about that. And when I mean it's been a struggle as a dark-skinned black woman, it's been it's been hard. So when it's when Rihanna dropped Fenty, th- all these brands now realize, oh, my gosh, there's a whole, you know, um, range of women out here who want or want to maybe buy our products it's like yeah of course but the point is is i actually went into shoppers the other day and i'm seeing brands like um cover girl maybelline they have colors darker than me i was like since when since when and it's so like something like that beyonce uh, i keep saying beyonce rihanna doing that has really like we we say she's changed the game and we see other high-end uh, brands really expand their color line, but if it's trickling down to drugstore makeup, right, and them doing so, even it's, I just think it's so remarkable, and it, it's just something that I really hold dearly, and Rihanna didn't have to do that. She's a light-skinned Black woman, yeah. you know. She has been benefiting from beauty, from the beauty industry as it relates to those um, with, like, some melanin yeah. in, in their skin tone for quite some time. And she had the foresight to be like, whoa, there's, like, really, there's some grave acts of discrimination there. And that's what I just respect so much. Even her lingerie line, when it yeah. comes to, like, body acceptance, all of that, she's just so conscious, like, conscious. Um, or I'm not even I'm saying that word right. But she's just so aware, and I'm just, it's 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 a remarkable to watch. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm totally thankful. And so um, I started out in digital media by, so about in 2008, I started a blog to um, find like, find products for, for women of color, especially darker skinned women of color. Like this was how I entered into digital is it was our digital content was that and so in Canada because in the states they had they had a few things right they have more options but especially in Canada and that's why the distribution of Fenty is so very important um Fenty uh was distributed um into Sephora mm-hmm which was very important, which means that Fenty was available beyond the United States, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I think when we think about what this brand has done, it's been accessible. So, um, and being accessible, oh, sorry. Being accessible really means that, um, that, you know, everyday people can get their hands on it. Yeah. But she really made sure that it landed everywhere. It wasn't because how many times have you heard growing up? Have you heard of a brand for black women, but like shoppers didn't bring it in? Oh, yeah. Or even some shoppers drug mart because there's not, this is the rationale that I've been told. There's just not a lot of black people that live in that area. Yeah, that's a bullshit rationale <laughs> because it's not only black people who are dark skin, first of all. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the South Asian community who could use that mm-hmm. too. And they've been mm-hmm. like, 
I think there was a brand called Visanti or something like that, who was started by two South Asian women out of Toronto somewhere that was distributed its shoppers for a, a like a couple seconds and then it kind of just left and yeah. Iman Iman had a line for a while Iman had a line yeah it was at the bay yeah and the bay is higher end as well like it's not as yeah like Iman was was another great one because it was affordable that was the thing about Iman Iman had like drugstore prices for an expansive line and oh, you're right. Okay. I didn't know it was affordable because I thought it was at the Bay and the Bay is usually, usually, because I've tried. Yeah. Usually, okay. but you have to find like hole in the wall places that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, if you live in like Winnipeg, where the fuck are you going to get a man? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was just such a struggle for so long. And I just want to say to all the white women listening, y'all don't know. Y'all don't know our struggles in the beauty industry. Yeah. Because, like, I'm dark-skinned too, so you and I are in the same boat. I usually, and this is what another thing Rihanna did in, and I know we're supposed to be talking about fashion, but fuck it. Um, Rihanna also added in more variations within the dark skin tone. Yeah. So you didn't just Mm -hmm. have like three dark skin tones. You have, I was just in like Sephora this week. So I reacquainted myself with the line and literally she left no stone unturned in either direction. Cause I know that if you're very, very fair skin, also you have problems finding that stuff. So she covered everybody. Albinos could find makeup. Like, who who did that before? Nobody, you know? And it's the fact that always beware of lines mm-hmm. that say, we offer, like, 35 shades, because I kid you not, 30 of them are too light for you. <laughs> like, you know? And she really, like, put effort in making sure that everybody was represented. And look how well that brand, that brand is now the leader, I'm sure, of a lot of, of beauty brands. And this is the thing. They try to tell us that it won't sell. They try to tell, I remember when Naomi Campbell was first on the cover of British Vogue and you still had Americans here and Canadians saying, well, black people won't sell on the cover. It was one of the biggest selling um like magazine covers tyra on the on the cover of sports illustrated what are the biggest selling even though they you can point to examples where you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong because this this and this sold more than anybody any any other issue in fashion they still refuse to put us in their shows to put us on their campaigns to put us in a visible place where our our the where we would be normalized in the industry and i just know on a certain level that rihanna will break into that too but i have a question for you is this much ado about nothing at a time when the fashion show is kind of faltering and dying 
or at least New York Fashion Week is dying. That's such a good question. So you're basically asking, like, is it the fact that because it's a dying industry, now they're more open to, yeah. like, Rihanna leading a luxury brand? Yeah, because they're dying. Because there's this thing about the glass cliff that whenever industries or companies get into trouble, they go to women or people of color to save them. Specifically Black women. Yeah, specifically Black yeah, women. Yeah, that is yeah. such a great... So I am not going to pretend to know a lot about fashion. As much as I'd like to dabble in fashion and beauty, I understand that this is a whole industry with experts. And like, for example, like the Met Gala each year, I never know the themes. I'm like surprised. Each yeah. I'm Googling what, like I'm Googling what camp is. I'm Googling what this is. I'm like, okay, cool. Like yeah, yeah, I have yeah. respect for like that being an industry where people are like leading in that particular field. Um, but I can't say that Brianna's doing a lot for them, for this brand, for LVMH. Like I can see Rihanna adding a lot more and making them relevant in ways they haven't been for a while. Um, and considering that I, I think fashion is changing so much, like even who's considered worthy enough to wear uh, gowns or outfits of like Dior, Fendi, and like even with the whole, as you mentioned, influencer culture, right? We're normal, quote unquote normal, or non, I guess, traditional celebrities can now be considered as like these influencers in a in a in an industry that was largely, I would say, pretty insular for for a pretty long yeah. time. So I'm curious to see what Rihanna creates. I'm curious to see what Rihanna brings. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'm really just open right now to seeing what this partnership could look like and if it's going to be as revolutionary as Fenty. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at. I think, and so I think Rihanna has a little bit of a high expectations here, mind you, of like what people are expecting from her, but I would say that this is more of a benefit to Albia Mitch than it is to Rihanna, for sure, at this point. Oh, hi. Oh, I, I I would say like there's maybe high expectations for what she will produce or the, or the products, her product. But I would say it's it's very much a benefit to the LVMH brand to have Rihanna than it is for Rihanna to be associated with them. So I think they're very lucky to have snagged her. Interesting. What are your thoughts? Because you, you raise a good point around like it's a dying industry. Like what's. It is a dying industry, um, and they're dying because they were so insular. Mm-hmm. You know, any insular industry right now is just dying. Like, there's a reason Canadian media is dying. You know, that's another insular um, industry that's just like cannibalizing itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and anytime you're not expansive and you're not um, opening up to new new markets you're dying and you know this is this is where um like hubris kills an industry mm-hmm. it's because you think that your industry is populated by your type of people and therefore you don't want anybody else you you got in so you lift up the drawbridge for everybody else and that's going to kill your industry. It's funny because I was I was looking at I wasn't going to talk about this, but here I am. I was looking at the um, pictures for 
what was it? The Canadian media, some media awards thing on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, they, and these are people who are like, they have their sound bites to answer every diversity question. Mm-hmm. So they're like, Oh, well, we know that things must be more diverse, but you know, it's difficult. And I'm just like, well, you carry on with that because you're just going to die. Yeah. It hurts you're just you gonna die. in the long run. It hurts you more because we're all, we're all um, like, we have a subscription to the Times and the Washington Post. And I see Bloomberg's coming up and doing some Canadian news. So fuck you. Like what's going to die, unfortunately, is the local news, which is something that they're not even investing in anyway. So I, I just think that if you don't open up to new markets, to people you haven't served before, you're just going to die. That's it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we're on that note. There is this week in feminism. Stay tuned for rant and receipts. All right. And now we're on to rant and receipts where we each take a piece of, well, bullshittery, I guess, and rant about it. Um, Brittany, you're first. So my rant of the week, I hinted at it earlier in the podcast, and it is basically men who insert themselves into the abortion debate and dub themselves (laughs) the spokespeople of the anti-choice movement. Oh my God. Specifically on my hit list is Sam Ostroff. Excuse my pronunciation. Um, That's exactly who I was thinking of. MPP in Ontario, who has taken it upon himself to be the spokesperson of the unborn life. I say that in quotes. I have air quotes right now. um, To Mm -hmm. advocate for them and to make abortion unthinkable in society. I am particularly angered by this because for one, abortions have nothing to do with men. It has nothing to do with their bodies, their health, their well-being, what the experience of pregnancy is, how the act of one getting pregnant occurred, what entailed there. It is just, again, similar to periods, an issue that is completely removed from them and their livelihoods. So this is one of the awful and remarkable ways that patriarchy operates, where men feel entitled and feel, I would say, motivated to take it upon themselves to be the savior 
of all things when it comes to women and to let the world know what they feel a woman should do, how it should be done as it relates to their very specific experience. And it's, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling. It's angering that men can feel so entitled to be a part of this conversation. So entitled to even lead this conversation. Um, it is extremely sexist. It's, it's extremely misogynistic. Um, it's again, a silencing of women's voices. It's, it's just one of the awful, awful, ways that patriarchy wears its ugly head. And on this particular subject, this one, for a man to tell a woman what and how they should do with their bodies is just, it's it's repulsive. Um, so that's, that's, that's my rant for the week. I'm angry. I think Sam Ostroff needs to sit down and mind his own business. I think that he needs to remove himself entirely from the conversation. I don't want to see his face in the news when it comes to an anti-choice rally. His face should not be there. I don't want to hear whatever he has to say. Why are media outlets going to him? What makes him credible to speak on this issue? Because he's a 21 year old MPP. What makes him credible? (laughs) How He's fucking 21. Sourcing out our, like, no, don't talk to him. His opinions don't matter. This is a man who hasn't had a career yeah. outside of as Like, so he doesn't know the day in and day, not to say that he would had he had a career because men seem to turn themselves off from whatever women face, but feel that they need to put their mouths into our situations it's like it's like when white people want to speak for black people too like it's the same type of of privileged idea like that sam oster whatever the fuck his name is i don't even know like i don't care to learn it um was elected at 19 19 i'm sorry but not to say that were he older he would have better credibility because he would not but he's basically should just be in learning humble yourself at this, sit down at 19 and, and yes thank you kendrick told y'all like humble yourself sit down and eat your food and shut the fuck up yeah. and listen to the grown people talk to that's the way the i feel about audacity him. to be the spokesperson to tell yourself, I am going to be the spokesperson around an experience that has to do solely with women and their bodies. It's it's like, wow, wow. Where do you get that sense of confidence from? We all know where it comes from. Where do you get that sense of like, like tenacity and, and, and motivation to, to do that? You know, and it's like we all, yeah. And Entitlement like, if all of us walked around with yeah. the confidence of, of white men. And like their 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 savior mentality, I mean, especially I would say like people of color, black people, like people are working towards eradicating injustices. Wow, like this world would be a much better place. But yeah, that is that is my rant, and I'm very I'm very angry. Like this week has been like I think a, a very interesting week as it comes. Not it's not an interesting week. It's been an awful week. I'm gonna say when it comes to anti um, pro pro mm-hmm. choice. Um, conversations and knowing that we're in 2019 and we're still having these debates, seeing the law that was introduced in Georgia um, recently that makes abortions um, I think illegal after six weeks. And and you can tell a man is drafting this because six weeks, you know how early that is? You you just missed your period. Like you don't even, you, you may not even know 
Yeah. And yeah. so it's like that the science yeah. around that, so you're basically making it illegal, essentially, without like, yeah, without. Most women, yeah, most women don't yeah. have morning sickness until nine weeks. So, so put again, that into perspective. it's just like, yeah, it's so frustrating. It's so angering. And it's just, it just, it's just an indicator of like, where are we when it comes to women's rights and women's voices and women's autonomy? Um, where, how, and like how easy it, it can be all be undone. And we should not take any, um, I would say, uh, movement or policy or decision that gives us more rights for granted and how it always needs to be continuously worked at to at least be maintained, let alone improved on. So that's my rant. Yeah. So I'm going to, so I saw a tweet over the weekend about how desperate, you know, uh, this is, this is going to be in the next section, but let's, let's put it this way. I um, want to know, you know, there are women's organizations doing this work, been doing this work. I want to know where all these second wave feminists were after they took over their corporate jobs. That's what the fuck I want to know. I want to know where, the, where is their activism? These lean in corporate women who are like, oh, I'm a feminist. All these people who in 2015, 2016, who are like, I'm a feminist. Well, where's your advocacy? Where, where's your activism? Because feminism is not your corporate brand. It's a movement. And a movement needs activism or else it's not a movement. Mm-hmm. So where where are they? That's my question. Why are we why are we fighting this in this generation? And I feel like the previous generation has just kind of They've got their power, so they don't, give, they don't give a shit. That's the way I feel. And, you know, people can at me if they want to. I will defend this because I want to see where their activism is. They are too, the, we have, let me, let's take a look at this landscape. We have an infringement on women's rights all over, not all, only all over the United States, all over this country. If people think that this is not going to happen here, they haven't been paying the fuck attention. And this is what angers me, is that when you have activists doing the work they do, you know, advocating for women's rights, it's like, oh, we're over that. We already have rights. What's your problem? And these women will turn around and call themselves feminists and not engage in an actual movement because they're just using it as a brand. When feminism is a social justice movement and the amount of times i have had to say that is gross because for some reason we have a whole generation that wanted to take the activism Mm -hmm. out of feminism Mm -hmm. and corporatize it and i'm sick of it and this is what we get because that's what you did yeah and that's what's that's what angers me people are like where are the men fuck the men why should we be looking to men to save us that's my question i don't want to be saved by a man i want fucking rights Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't understand. I didn't understand. I don't understand. And I didn't think I would get this upset, but I'm upset. Well, it's a rant. It's a rant, you know? It's not really a rant if you're not that upset. But no, yeah, yeah this is like, really, it's angering. That's the thing. It's, like, it's where are these women who are up in corporate asking and demanding that some of those corporate uh, responsibility funding go to women's rights? Because every corporation has some corporate social responsibility nest egg. Your job in that corporate decision-making senior management position as a woman is to try to direct that towards actual activism. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about making change from within? Why don't you do that? I just, I'm, I'm just, I... I'm not like, I remember at a time when I was like, yeah, you're a feminist, show me your credentials. And people were like, well, I don't want to police other women's feminism. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I want to do because of times like this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my thing. Where all these, where all these lean in women support, were they supporting Stacey Abrams? Were they? Because had Stacey Abrams been governor, Georgia wouldn't have this. You can almost a hundred percent guarantee that. Yes, I can feel confidently, like a hundred percent, that this would have never occurred. It would never come up. But I'm, I'm, call- you know what? I'm calling out all these white women who claim to be all for women, women's empowerment, and feminism, who are up in their fucking corporate corner office or cubicle, whatever. Okay, and they are not putting their money where their mouths are and just letting it happen. Because if we're waiting for men to do it, then we'll never get anywhere. So I want to know where those women are at. And I want to know what they're doing to empower the grassroots organizations that are doing the work on the ground. And it goes beyond the grassroots organizations that are doing the work it goes to politics too mm-hmm. you know we who knows what andrew shear is going to bring in who the fuck knows where where are all these canadian women in their lofty positions where are they trying to do that work to either allocate funds or use their expertise to volunteer oh they're volunteering on nonprofit organizations that don't want to say shit or do shit because they're afraid of losing their funding. When they're going to lose their funding anyway, whether they say something or they don't, depending on the government. Like, what? I, I'm just angry at this entire network and system. And this is why we're here. Not because it's not about it's not just about the GOP or the conservatives or whatever. They're going to do what they do. My question is, if you re- try going beyond going to a women's march once a year and then we can talk. Okay. No. Anything else? For me? <laughs> no. You I feel like to I took you over your rant. You had a rant. It was fine. It was great. I, yeah. I'm just angry because. Because I've been there. I've been in that room. I've been there. And I've been like, I, they're like, well, we don't want to say anything because of our funding. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. then what the fuck are you here for? 
they're like we're here to serve the the and yes you do go do good work on frontline services i ain't gonna take that away from you i'm not gonna knock you for it it's work that a lot of us wouldn't do right i get that but if you're not challenging a doug ford government then what the fuck are you here for and they're like, well, we're going to lose our funding if we challenge the mayor, if we challenge the premier. You're going to lose your funding anyway because their purpose is not about you. It's about the whole entire system and taking you out of that system. So you're staying silent for no other reason than fear that's going to come anyway. Does that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense. It makes and like, sense. so then change your fundraising model. Mm-hmm. Go to those same corporate lean-in women and say, "We're okay. You are, you are a feminist. You do this. You do that. Give us some money." Yep, absolutely agree. <sighs> okay, um. like <laughs> this is the thing. I'm like, I'm like, people are like, "What are you gonna run?" And I'm like. I'm like, you guys ain't ready for this. I would <laughs> we're ready. Have... We're ready. What do you mean? You... We're ready. It's No, needed. y'all ain't ready. Because I would have all of these ideas and people would be like, oh my God. And I would be like, yeah, well, put up or shut up. I don't know. We, Brittany, you have your place in the whole like advocacy system or whatever. You do your part. I do my part. And like us, bad, we a baddie bitchy. We do more than this podcast, right? We go out. We advocate. We do advocacy work. We don't have any more time. But these people who are like, ooh, Sheryl Sandberg, let's lean in. I'm like, okay, so where are you? And why are you silent? And why weren't you out there stumping for Stacey Abrams so that this wouldn't happen? Where's your long-term thinking? Mm -hmm. Anyway. Okay, I think because it's like that off, but like I'm very hopeful that our civil society sector becomes more politically active. But that's just to add to what you're saying. Also, extremely hopeful for that. Oh, I think it'll happen because it'll be a necessity. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I like I, I do <laughs> see how I'm like I'm actually very positive about this. <laughs> I do. Um, I do think that people are ready to listen. Let's put it that way. And that's important. I'm not going to pretend that that's not important because it is. Yes. But I did interrupt you as I think you were transitioning. Yeah, I'm just I'm just going to move on because, um, yeah, because, you know, (laughs) I got to call my mom. (laughs) I got a lovely picture of her. My dad sent it to me. I'm like, I'm going to post it on Instagram and you can see what my mom looks like. Um. All right. So my rant and receipts is like, is basically what we were talking about earlier, where the media blames structural problems on individuals when there's only so much one can do within said structure. So USA Today, of course, the bastion of of good news, (laughs) posted, um, I guess, they had, you know, the um, the podcast Motley Fool, which talks about um, finance and stuff like that. Apparently, they wrote a piece in USA Today 
about how the average adult in the U.S. spends $1,497 a month on non-essential items, non-essential mm-hmm. items. So that's roughly $18,000 a year on things that they say that we can do without. Um, so according to them, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a few luxuries here and there to make life enjoyable, but Americans are spending a small fortune on treats, and I use that term treats in quotations, I'm air quoting, that are ultimately stripping them of the opportunity to save and use their money more responsibly. Now, um, I have a problem with this because this is um, a narrative that has been peddled to millennials for like the past 15 years or 10 or 15 years, which is you're killing this industry. You're killing that industry. How dare you eat avocado? How dare you use ride share services? And how dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Because you're killing every industry. And by the way, if it's, if you're poor, it's your fault. So I just want to add some context in here. Pew Research um, who like, I love Pew Research. I love their social media. I love their graphs. I love their data visual visualization. Um, I wish stats can could be more like that because they actually bring stats down to like an understandable kind of consumable level. And basically what they said was that U S unemployment. Yes. Is low right now. And it's been the lowest for nearly two decades, 3.9% around. Thank you, Obama. Um, And private sector employers have been adding jobs for 101 straight months, 19.5 million jobs since the Great Recession-related cuts that finally abated in early 2010, 1.5 million from the beginning of 2019. However... Even though there's a strong labor market, wage growth has lagged economists' predictions or expectations. In fact, despite some ups and downs over the past several decades, today's real average wage, which is the wage after accounting for inflation, has been the same in terms of purchasing power as it was 40 years ago. And what wage gains there have been have accrued to the highest paid tier of workers. After adjusting for inflation, today's average hourly wage is about the same as 1978, following a long slide in the 80s and early 90s, and then a bumpy, inconsistent growth since then. In fact, real terms, in real terms, Average hourly wages peaked more than 45 years ago at $4.03 an hour recorded in January 1973, which would have the same purchasing power as $23.68 would today. And that's, I will, I will, I have my discussion points, but I will kick it to you. And as a policy person, I know that you Mm -hmm. are very much aware of this. So I will kick it to you. And 
I will go through. So the, I guess the first point is, um, the, the discrepancy between what the media says and what the actual research says. Yeah, I think it's so it's interesting. We do have this running narrative that millennials are killing everything. Right. And it's it's obviously a misleading narrative because it doesn't point to the broader structural and socioeconomic circumstances that millennials and uh, generations after it are experiencing. So I think this issue, especially within the Canadian context, comes down to income and wages. Incomes have been stagnant. And there hasn't been much income or wage growth, as you've mentioned, and it's very similar to here in Canada since the 1980s, if you adjust for inflation, while the cost of living has gone up tremendously. I don't have the exact um, stat or cost right now, but Mm -hmm. it it has gone up quite substantially. So with that being said, to account for this problem, there really needs to be specific and directed policies in order to address the growing income gap that exists, but also to address stagnant wages and uh, to, to address the fact that, yeah, income hasn't gone up. One measure that was introduced, we obviously, well, first I just need to say, we obviously can't leave it to the market because the market has, you know, has been dictating this for quite some time and we haven't seen anything increase. Right. So there needs to be some sort of intervention here to account for this Um, government policies, such as the $15 minimum wage was one of them. I am a proponent of increasing the minimum wage. I think that's important. Uh, So that's that's another form. But there's other ways that we can do it, too. So how do we ensure that precariousness in the labor force is doesn't run rampant? Um, How do we ensure that an extra additional cost such as. Um, cost of prescription prescription drugs, dental care, vision care, uh, going to the dentist, child care, etc. How do we reduce those costs so the money that you are making can be retained, right? And those are services that we actually need, but those are huge expenses. Um, so investing in those services is a one way to help income retention. I think that's that's extremely important. So I tell agree. me, so tell me if I'm like veering a little bit too far off from, I guess, the question. No. Um, okay. I'm on. Okay. I'm still on point because it's a really big, big topic. And it's one that I think we're all grappling with. And I personally think millennials are, are the lost generation. Yeah. Meaning that it was a generation because there's so much rapid change that occurred uh, during the generation of millennials, whether it's technological change, um, labor changes, the nature of work and how it changes, um, benefits, pensions, housing, so much occurred within this specific generation and, and that uh, within that time period that policy didn't catch up enough or government policy didn't catch up enough in order to ensure that there isn't a housing affordability crisis, <laughs> in order to ensure that we have labor laws that reflect our current uh, economy in order to ensure that you know the income gap is not widening um, exponentially as 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 we as we move forward. So it's like it's like it's like a really interesting generation where, um, because so much things happened, it was like people are now trying to catch up. It's trial and error, but the impacts, the fallout 
of like neglectful policy making is already being felt by us. So Gen Z, which I believe is the next generation, is now like, they're going to now, I think, experience some of the policy changes that I think most governments and elected officials are interested, most, I say that generously, um, interested in implementing by the time they kind of reach, you know, their peak adult years. I think Gen Z is going to reap some of those benefits. But then you have millennials here who are like now caught in the middle of like, an extended, like they're trying to like experience adulthood as it relates to like building a family, you know, living in a permanent situation, whether it's rental, whether it's home ownership, but having some sort of um, stability within that, right? And then this is not accounting for like poverty and 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 very specific low income situations, um, but I think right now we're in policy catch up. And that is what's happening, and we're seeing the fallout of that. I agree. Um, um, I want to let me just go through a little bit about what they consider frivolous, first of all. So, um, one so what they call sort of like these these frivolous you know charges and one of them is ride sharing which i have an objection to because let's be honest let's look at transportation in our in cities mm-hmm. it's trash transportation in ottawa is hella expensive City Council just voted to raise transportation rates when they just cut back on service. But four dollars. Yeah, and it's, it's so like th- things like that are so ridiculous to state in terms of ride sharing because one, it's uh, it decreases uh, traffic congestion. So thank goodness for ride sharing. Yeah, and uh, ones where like you're actually sharing. I like. Uber pool, I think helps that. I understand that there's like a correlation between like the amount of like Ubers and Lyfts on the road and how that does contribute to traffic congestion. So I'm going to say that caveat, but in terms of like an Uber pool, Mm -hmm. that helps, you know, carpooling helps. I would say just how people get around. Less people are driving cars. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe people are looking to public transportation because public transportation sucks. Yeah. Isn't ride share like good for the economy? like good yeah, for the climate like, like yeah better if than we encourage more communal sharing like and, that and what would be and here's my problem too what would be the alternative so the alternative is an is an essentialist expense so if you have a car and you have insurance which would cost you more monthly that's essential but a cheaper ride share is non-essential to cut back on. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the reasoning. You know what I mean? Um, personal grooming. I'm sorry. Personal grooming isn't essential. Do you have a job? Like what the fuck? I personal. Okay. So ride shares at $96 and 11 cents, they call non-essential which i challenge oh no not even non-essential they call it a luxury okay sure um i also have a problem with drinks and eating out and i'll tell you why 
If you are in a gig economy and you're freelance, you better be schmoozing the fuck out of people. You better be networking and because how else are you going to get your next mm-hmm. job? And that requires going out for drinks or dinner or coffee or lunch. What if you have your own business? What if you have a side business? What do you have a side hustle? How are you going to get clients if you're not going to go for dinner or lunch or drinks or coffee? The fuck? Okay. So now, now I'm on it. Now I'm on a tear. Okay. Ride shares, personal grooming, subscription boxes. How do we know like, how do you know that these aren't essential products that people are just like getting a different way? You know, online shopping. Well, how do you know I'm not buying my groceries online? How do you know I'm not buying my toilet paper online? Or even the news. And even something as... And the news! Or even something as as, as, as Netflix, where cables change. You kind of have to... You you have to buy these things. Are you saying that people should be afforded a life of, like, no internet... Or like no source of entertainment, no Netflix, no Apple Music. Like these are things that are becoming just like once a how a cell phone, people never used to have cell yeah. phones, and now cell phones are being seen as like a necessity, not a luxury, because people need to be they are or like Wi-Fi or data being seen as a necessity, not a luxury, because society has moved and shifted in ways that are organized around these things. So yeah, coffee. Music streaming services, $22.41 a month. Isn't that cheaper than, like, a CD was? A CD was, I would say, between, like, $15 to $10. One CD. Yeah. So, isn't that cheaper? Like, I, I just, I just, I'm just, like, this upset me because there has been an ongoing narrative about you are poor or millennials, you aren't getting ahead because it's your fault. Not because what of what Pew Research told us is happening. Yeah. And that's my problem. And I'm tired of these news outlets talking to millennials who are almost like, are, the oldest millennials are like 40, okay? Yeah. These it's aren't like 20 year olds. <laughs> Like, get the fuck out of here. And 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 the 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 millennials who are just, oh, they're just so lazy. Yeah, maybe they're fucking tired because they work three damn jobs. How about that? Okay. Oh my god, I'm just so angry because I'm Yes, I do. Okay, we're going to end this now. So we're going to wrap up the regular episode as I'm just still fuming at this, okay? Um, <laughs> so, Brittany, where can people find you? Oh, well, they can find me on Twitter at Brittany Amofa is my handle. So B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y. A-M-O-F-A-H. That is the platform I am most active on. And then you can catch my work on a variety of different places. As you guys heard at the beginning, everyone heard at the beginning of the episode, I work at the Broadband Institute. So you can see some of my policy work there. Or you can catch me on air. I'm on CBC quite regularly. And I appear on a number of different public 
fair shows, but CBC's kind of the main gist. Weren't you on the agenda and recently? I thought I saw you on the I agenda. Was. I was. I was on the agenda last week. Okay. Having a conversation on, uh, on democracy. So I do appear uh, semi-regularly there. Okay, send is- us the link and we'll um, we'll put it in the show notes. Or the, okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Definitely yeah. will do, but catch me on Twitter. Okay. And, and um, oh, shoot. Oh, gosh. You know what? I have to... Oh, yes. Um, I'm producing this today, so I don't have Aaron handing me shit. So, <laughs> so catch Bad and Bitchy on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bad and B podcast. On Twitter at Bad and Bitchy. Instagram at Bad and Bitchy pod. Email us all your love notes and hate and you know maybe you'll get a response bad and be pod at gmail.com just kidding i don't respond aaron does um patreon patreon.com slash bad and bitchy um support us support the work we we do listen tell your self-described feminist boss to 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 pay a contribution to bad and bitchy um and we have merch redbubble.com slash people slash bad and bitchy all right you have to do the becky buy so on three okay (laughs) one two three bye Bye. (laughs) okay thank you for having me this was fun